With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HN Podcast with Miller and Dace working our way through the month of June. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about the Athlon Preview Magazine, which Steve rated as, uh, I think, darn near a must-buy this year, given all the history they have on it, right? Yeah, it's their 50th anniversary issue, and they do a phenomenal job. I, it, it's, it's one that I think has a shelf life beyond just scanning through their predictions and finding out how if at all accurate they are this year i mean there's a lot of good stuff if you're a college football nerd to 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 read and to look back on it's really cool yeah and i think the majority of people that buy these magazines are probably close to nerd status which we say that affectionately um or full full full-fledged nerd you being near the highest level of the species hierarchy as far as college football nerd is concerned and again i i say that as a compliment so don't take offense but this week you have in your hands the uh lindy's college football preview i recall from past years you've talked about how you've liked lindy's photography i can't recall specifically the you know the nuances of the magazine that you do like uh what stands out to you this year about what lindy's has included for this year versus other years or any of those things pretty standard lindy's preview what i love about lindy's you know they all have their niches i think in terms of readability and information the sporting news probably will have Street and Smith's again now, but that's probably the best balance. For sheer information, it's Phil Steele. Um, Athlons uh, did a great job this year with sort of their retrospective. And, and, and Athlons and Lindy's do what sporting news slash Streets and Smith's and, and Phil Steele does not, which is put out conference-specific magazines for both Big Ten and Big 12 uh, and all the other Power 5 leagues. So that really helps to really get in-depth. If you are, you're an Iowa fan, you want to know about the other teams in the league, that's helpful. Athlons has a really good feature we talked about a couple of weeks ago. They do every year where, you know, um, anonymous opposing coaches tell you what they really think. What I love about Lindy's every year is their, um, their news and notes, you know, sort of uh, preamble in the opening few pages – I always think their news and notes are the best every year. Uh, they, they really do a great job with that. And now they, they have Jerry DiNardo of the Big Ten Network sort of giving his perspective on every team in the Big Ten. Now, you know, I, I don't really have a lot of regard for him as an analyst. I don't think he's good television. And I don't think his analysis is very good. But this at least gives you an idea of what you know over at the big 10 home office they're thinking about the big 10 squads because he's sort of the uh, i guess you know i guess he's the dean of the um the uh, analytical faculty over there which admittedly is a low bar (laughs) tell us how you really feel um all right well dive into it uh i don't know if you want to go 
West and East or how you want to talk about it. But I think that's probably the most interesting aspect to our listeners is what uh, what Jerry had to say about each Big Ten team. And I don't disagree with you. I think in a setting like this, I mean, we we, we got to say up front, you know, more often than not, the Big Ten network is very PC. And, um, you know, whenever they have their annual bus tours, we always kind of laugh at how not everybody can be good. But, you know, if there's faint praise, we usually amplify that and run that through our filter and say, okay, they must not think very highly of this team. Um, So let's hear what Jerry had to say. With my belief, without having read them, it's probably going to be milk toast. Yeah, and, and, you know, when the bus tours come around here in about a month, it's not that far away now. I mean, it's camps for most of the Big Ten teams start in about 40 days. So we're all, we're less than two months from when the bus tours will begin. And remind me to reset this when that happens, because what I would urge our listeners to do is for, you know, the first few years they did this, even with their sports information director, banal analysis, the live looks and stuff we would get at practice where we could watch drills and things of that nature were invaluable. That's all gone now. Now, now it's just, in fact, each school doesn't even get their own show. What they've done the last couple of years is it's that it's the nightly Big Ten show, and then they just happen to do a portion of it from at each school when the bus tour is there. So what I would urge our audience to do, I think a worthwhile exercise is if you're not following Dave Revson from the Big Ten Network, if you're not following him on Twitter now, you definitely want to be following him on Twitter when the bus tour begins because I know it's weird because he's actually supposed to be the straight man. But I think he provides the most, uh, the mo- the closest thing to critical analysis, and and I don't necessarily mean critical in terms of criticism, much more in the in vein of uh, objective um, and uh, you know constructive critical analysis, probably on that team. And so his tweets when they're there during the day at the practice before the show runs, I think those are an invaluable tool for Big Ten fans. And I think they provide a lot more meat than what you actually get on the uh, the episodes themselves. So, well, yeah, but, 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 I mean, like if you see one of them say, "Boy, uh, this," you know, the Iowa wide receivers uh, have a lot of work to do before fall. You 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 amplify that. I mean, that's that, yes. that's the sort of thing you're like, uh oh, um, when, when your mom's you know criticizing you, you're in trouble. Sort of the deal. right. I mean, I just listen. I, I love the Big Ten. You know that. The SEC network is 10 times better, and I hate saying that. I don't want that to be true. But when you tune in the SEC network, they just let Paul Feinbaum just go off on people. I mean, the, the analyst, oh, that guy just sucks. I mean, they stopped, the analysis stops short of actually just saying that, but they don't pull any punches at all. There, there's, there's no attempt to sit there and act as if, you know, our job here is – Frankly, I, I'm, I might make the case the analysis on the SEC network is more critical than what you get from several of the people on ESPN's national platform during the season. I mean, they, they don't pull any punches on any level. And I think that's reflective of the second place is the first loser sort of mentality in the SEC. And, you know, maybe we just maybe we just don't want to win as much as they do. Or maybe the Big Ten's just uber paranoid where they want to be Napoleon commissioner. Maybe it's a little bit of both. I don't know. But if, if, you, if you watch the two networks, you see there are dramatic differences 
not just in graphic ability, um, the talent. I mean, SEC is dramatically superior, but they actually let people have opinions there. You know, so right. um, so here's Gennard, Denardo's. We'll just do these alphabetically, and then you know we'll go each give a quick hot yeah. take on what we sure. think. Okay, on Illinois. Play freshman early, start spring, start, start spring ball in February, go slow in recruiting. That's Lovey Ball. It didn't take long to see Lovey's plan unfold. His biggest challenge was the development of the present roster and to find a way to recruit talent, much like Ron Zook's Rose Bowl-type talent. Last year, Illinois played 23 freshmen. 13 of them started at least one game. They had 28 first-time starters, most in the country. His approach to recruiting with a staff that has a major presence of former NFL assistants is unique. The emphasis is patience in the evaluation process while resisting participating in the early commitment craze in college football. He coached and coached against many three-star recruits in the NFL and sees that as a niche that could define the Illini's recruiting. Okay, I'm going to let people in on some broadcasting secrets here. When you hear someone use the term unique, it usually doesn't mean good it means um well they're doing things different than other people and when we're talking about illinois and recruiting and waiting and looking at where they ranked in the recruiting rankings i would say unique is not even faint praise unique is a is a way to say something without being critical that's my take i don't know what you think about that but more often than not that's my version of unique yeah, you know, because of what I do in my day job the last few years, I've had a lot of opportunity to hang around Southerners, okay? And when I hear Jerry DiNardo say Illinois' recruiting is unique, it reminds me of when someone in the South thinks someone else has gone off the rails, but they're just too polite to say it like that. So like, bless his heart, that's exactly <laughs> what I took that as, Okay. Yeah, just patronizing, pretty much. Yes, very. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, another another quick broadcasting tip: when you hear a, a sports talk radio host say "interesting" after uh, a guest just gave a long answer or any type of answer, and they say "interesting," um, they really don't mean that it was interesting. It's just them thinking of the next thing they're going to say or ask, or they didn't think the answer was all that compelling. So now you know. Nice. Uh, uh, it's true. It's a it's 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 a verbal crutch I hear all the time, and I laugh when I hear it. I have them as well. I have the. I think you and I oftentimes will say indeed, and that really means we have nothing more to add. So we're kind of letting cats out of the bag here. Let's move along to the next team in alphabetical order, which would be Indiana. After going to two bowl games in a row for the first time in 25 years, or in almost 30 years, we saw many unexpected changes in Indiana, especially in leadership roles. To make it even more challenging, it must be done in a certain style. When Kevin Wilson left, Athletic Director Fred Glass spoke to the uniqueness of the IU, IU job when he said, so what might be okay at other places, what might be okay in the industry, isn't necessarily okay here. The best years of IU football have always been when the Hoosiers have had a dynamic offensive scheme and or players and a defense that can hold serve. That's what we've seen being developed the past six years. The intrigue about the 2017, 2017 team is the fact that the Indiana defense may be the stronger unit. And can new coordinator Mike DeBoard continue to field a dynamic offense? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but can you remember the last time Indiana's defense held serve? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. In fact, you go back to the last time Indiana football, you know, he's at 90-91. You go back to from 87 to 91, they were pretty much in a bowl game every year. And those were the Bill Mallory teams, and those were built around power running games. 
you know, guys like Anthony Thompson, um, one of the great backs in Big Ten history. Uh, Vaughn Dunbar, I think, is who succeeded him. You know, they had decent quarterbacks. They had Dave Schnell back then was okay. Uh, they had Trent Green, who was okay and probably ended up being a better pro than anybody thought when he came out of Indiana. So I'm not exactly sure what he's really talking about. Um, yeah, and that's an example of I, I just don't have a lot of respect for his analysis. I, I just don't, you know. Right. Sorry, not sorry. Well, you know, I, I if you had to pick one statistic, and I'm not saying that this is the statistic that says it all, for, to measure a defense by as far as holding serve, what do, what would you say? Rushing defense and, and Big Ten related. Rushing I defense, would say, total I'd defense, say scoring defense? Third down, I would say third down defense, red zone defense. Okay, so Meaning bend but don't break, and can I get off the field if I have to on a, on a somewhat decent basis? Okay, third down conversion defense. Um, I'm trying to let me see if I can find. Uh, hang on a second. Big Ten oppo- opponent opponent third down conversions. Last year they were fourth in that. I, I'm just going to give you a little tease in my preview. I am by their standards. I am relatively high in Indiana. I like the makeup of their team. I think they have a potential pro prospect at quarterback. I think they have the best defensive front, which this is going to sound like really faint praise, you know, but I think they have the best defensive front they've had in a long time. Um, Maybe go back to the Van Waiters era in the late 80s with Indiana football, and admittedly, that's a low bar. But, I I mean, I I think that defensively, particularly in their front seven with guys like T. Gray Scales, I think talent-wise they can hang with pretty much every school in this conference other than – uh, the Ohio States, the Michigans that are just recruiting at a different level. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think their defensive front seven isn't better than Penn State's. You know, I, I love Penn State's offensive personnel. I, I don't know, you know, and Penn State's schedule is not that hard either. I, but, but when you know, if I'm an opposing quarterback, I'm not sure when I look at the Penn State defense, all right, that's the guy right there. I got to know where he's at every play. Right. You know what I'm saying? I don't right. know who that is. I, there's a, there's one or two guys like that in Indiana's defense. DeBoard, I think, is going to be a fascinating hire for them because, you know, he's he goes, you know, he's one of those he's a Ken O'Keefean type of figure in Michigan message boredom. Um, you know, of course, we like to forget that he actually was the offensive coordinator for a team that won the national championship, and, and so because of the tendency sometimes on third and eight to, to run the Michigan version of the bubble of Ken O'Keefe's bubble screen, which is the draw to a power back. Uh, he kind of has gone down in infamy at Michigan. But Michigan didn't win a lot of games with him as offensive coordinator. Uh, there's a chance that if Lloyd Carr had won that Rose Bowl against USC the year that they lost to Ohio State when it was one versus two, you might have seen Lloyd Carr retire and Mike DeBoard become head coach at that point. Mike DeBoard's offenses at Tennessee really lit things up the last couple of years. And even though he was a pro-style coach at Michigan, he was a power spread coach at Tennessee, well, uh, who's the who runs the power spread? That's Kevin Wilson's scheme, right? Actually, you know. So, so I, I think I like their team for by from in terms of the makeup of it. Um, I like what Tom Allen did with the defense. I think it's just, I don't know how good of a head coach he'll be, but the initial decision to go get another grizzled veteran to essentially coach the other half of the football, like Mike DeBoer, to me, I think that's a very mature decision as a new head coach. You know, outside of those three games they're going to play against Michigan, Penn State, and, and Ohio State, 
I don't know that all the rest of those games, including Wisconsin and home, I don't I don't know that those aren't all winnable. Two of the last three years in red zone defense, Indiana ranked uh, dead last. So, um, and then Donardo, two for two, he said the word uniqueness as it relates to Indiana. Now let's go to Iowa and hope that he does not have a trifecta for the unique comment. Uh, here's what he says about the Hawkeyes. Brian Ferentz takes over as offensive coordinator with what is basically a rebuild offensive staff. It's clear the offense won't look much different. It'll be a strong running game, execution-based, tight end and fullback driven. Like many Big Ten teams, I will have a new starting quarterback. The offense will need to develop an efficient play-action passing game to be effective. Last year's pass protection was a problem at times, but this year, with a veteran group of offensive linemen, improvement is expected. In general, a manageable non-conference schedule. A team with more depth at the line of scrimmage than in most years puts Iowa, a team that usually improves during the season, right in the middle of the West Division hunt. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that was maybe a little more optimistic than I expected to hear. Would hear maybe from somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight in the Big Ten. Yes, Iowa's pass protection the last two seasons has been pretty poor. Not not Jake Christensen 2007 post-traumatic stress disorder poor, but um, poor. And, and I think that they should be better. But, um, yeah, I, I think by and large that was, if you're an Iowa fan, you don't feel – you know, you don't feel that was uh, critical at all. Agreed, uh, but again, it's just—it's a whole it's lot. Nilla, of, it's, it's Nilla wafers, man. Well, yeah, it's just blah. Yeah, blah, you know. Yeah, that's going to be the sponsor for this podcast tonight, Nilla wafers. <laughs> Bring your own milk. <laughs> Let's go on alphabetically. I we're probably going to get what to the M's now, Michigan. Yeah, we're at Maryland. Maryland? We're at Maryland. Okay. DJ Durkin's success in recruiting certainly capitalized on the enthusiasm and moderate success of his first season. Keeping the local talent has no doubt, or keeping it at home has no doubt been a priority. DJ has some advantages over his predecessors. Maryland is now an established Big Ten member. It has new facilities. DJ can obviously recruit. What the team does this year on the field will be more important to recruiting than first-year enthusiasm. Prospects want to see improvement. It's clear Maryland has to become more physical to compete with the top half of the Big Ten East crossover west teams in a crazy non-conference game against texas you have to have a physical roster for maryland to continue the momentum in recruiting at least winning the games that it should win will be critical i will say this dj durkin his recruiting has impressed me um there's no doubt about that given that they haven't had a, a breakout season with which to build upon you know right now when you look at them in the rain i mean they're eighth in the big 10 but their average star commitment thus far at Rivals.com is 3.2 and they've got 10 commitments um, and if memory serves they've they've landed some uh, a few talented defensive linemen uh, defensive tackle they got one four star they got a four star offensive lineman so I mean they're not they're not like busting out the seams but they've recruited a little better than I would have expected for not really having a resume for it and yeah I mean if they if they can have a, a little bit of a breakout year eight or nine wins That'd be great. I haven't gone in and, and, and taken a deep dive into their schedule just yet. You may have done that. but Yeah, with the schedule they're playing, that's not I, I, can, I was just saying, I can tell you this. They still play in the same division as Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State. I think, especially when you look at the trend in college football, um, we don't have retreads getting jobs anymore. Now it is, find me the next 35, 42, 43-year-old wunderkind 
um, like what Oklahoma has done with Lincoln Riley, but all across the country, that's the trend. I, I think DJ Durkin, especially when you look at his resume, it's every bit as impressive as, say, Kirby Smarts before he got the Georgia job. Uh, tremendous defensive coordinator at Florida and at Michigan. 2012 Rivals.com National Recruiter of the Year at Florida. You see what he's doing with Maryland. I'm going to tell you right now, first chance he gets um, at another job up the up the rung, and I think it could come as soon as this offseason if they get to another bowl game, I think he's gone. I think he knows that he cannot compete on a regular basis with Michigan, Ohio State, and Penn State. And I think when you look at a guy that has now, because of his coaching background, has strong recruiting ties in Florida and the DMV there in the East, uh, that's going to be really attractive to somebody from a head coaching standpoint. If it, And I think it could come as soon as this offseason. Maryland's schedule out of conference. They play at Texas. Um, we know who they play from the East. Their crossover games to the West, um, Northwestern at home, at Minnesota on September 30th, Northwestern at home, and at Wisconsin. So no favors done to them at all. At all. Uh, moving on now to Michigan, right? Yeah, he says the Big Ten East is a division of high expectations. Urban wins the national championship his third year in Columbus. James Franklin wins the Big Ten his third year in Happy Valley. Jim Harbaugh has succeeded in step one energize the fan base and win games against teams with lesser talent the next step is more difficult for a team that has finished third the last two years in the east win the east win the big 10 compete for a national championship wilton spate returning at quarterback is a major plus the defense is still considered one of the most talented in the country with only one returning starter on defense and four on offense keeping pace with expectations will be a challenge yeah the last part i agree um Michigan fans, I, I think that there's this this Harbaugh um, factor in the eyes of the Michigan fans that you know he's just going to keep working miracles and, and keep raising the bar. Maybe he will, but I, I think that last point's on there. I mean, I don't know what you have for them yet, but I kind of see an eight or nine win uh, team this year. I think it just depends on what is your expectation level. I think for I think I think with Michigan, I think that. Um, unless i mean you know you had the win the win that iowa had last year which was a great win for them but it was a major upset obviously most of the time i think you're gonna have a very difficult time beating michigan running pro style back at them similar to it's very difficult to do that with nick saban at alabama i just the way they're recruiting and you got a guy who's done it at the highest levels of the nfl so you know, I, I'm not really worried about games like Wisconsin, even on the road. I'm more worried, frankly, especially with a young team, about games like at Indiana. When you play them on the road uh, between playing your, your in-state rival and you've got Penn State in a whiteout the very next week. And the last two years, Indiana has taken you down well to the wire. The, I mean, it was double overtime two years ago, and last year it was... You know, one possession game well into the fourth quarter till there was a blizzard. And games like at Maryland, you know, again, team that runs a spread and a coach that, you know, has, has an angle because he used to coach at Michigan and you play them before you, you you go on the road against Wisconsin and then play Ohio State. I think for a young team, those are the, those are the things as a fan I am probably more concerned about. Uh, I'll just say this, though, man, and I, I've, I've never seen – 
freshmen and and redshirt freshmen and sophomores at Michigan look the way these guys look. That is, they do not look like a team that you that that is when they go on the field September second. That is not going to look like a team replacing seventeen starters. Now, that doesn't mean they'll be great. Okay, but half the battle at this stage is development, and then it, then after development, it becomes a matter of execution. For young teams, most of the time, you have to tackle both of those things at once. If you only have to tackle one, I think you have a leg up. So I would say the ceiling is eight wins, or the floor is eight wins, and the ceiling would be uh, you know, winning, uh, getting into the Big Ten championship game. I, I think it'll be somewhere in there. And, you know, if you want it, if some one person wants to say 10 and two and the next person wants to say eight and four, nine and three, I could make a legitimate case for all of those things. All right. Now, uh, Michigan State, we'll see uh, Donardo really dig in his heels here, I'm sure. Yeah, because, you know, this is his boy here, okay? I mean, he's the, the, essentially the dean of discipline. Yeah, he he is. This has been he he has been a D'Antonio butt munch for the entire time on the Big Ten Network. So I'm going to read this for the first time. I've not read this yet. So I wanted to get I wanted us both to react to these in real time. So I've not read these comments yet. So that boy, we're we're getting all these. The audience is getting not just what you think, but what I think for the first time right now too. So. All right, let's see what he says. Last summer on the BTN camp tour, MSU was in the conversation as having one of the most talented teams in the Big Ten. One of the most impressive things about Mark D'Antonio's program has always been how good it's been with the things that take no talent, like leadership, effort, and chemistry. These things have always been trademarks of D'Antonio's teams, but maybe not last year. The Spartans started spring earlier than usual this year, no doubt in part to put last year behind them and move on. Between last season's decline and the offseason issues, MSU responded by using spring practice as an opportunity to come together as a team. Brian Lewerke at quarterback and getting back to mastering the no-talent issues can be a part of the perfect solution for moving on. Boy, that's probably going to be the kindest thing anyone says or writes about Michigan State going into this season in the country. Um, I will say that pre-D'Antonio, Michigan State routinely could not amass chemistry within their program they recruited top four top five in the big 10 which you know during you know prior to nebraska coming in it was 11 teams and michigan state would have a very talented roster a roster talented enough to win big 10 championships but a lot of those players i shouldn't say a lot they just they struggled to find chemistry well, during the, much of the D'Antonio era, they'd done a decent job of that. Some of the th- problems that had plagued them back when they were Sparty uh, didn't seem to happen during the, the, the five of six years where they won 11 games. Now, for the Big Ten folks last year to think that Michigan State had a, a, a roster talented enough to win the league, that was obviously just based upon what they'd done in recent history, and maybe they earned certainly earned the benefit of the doubt. But what they go three and nine last year. I mean, three and nine. Three and nine. So if you if you really believe after your camp bus tours, and you've seen, I don't know, well over a hundred Big Ten teams through the years of these bus tours. You know, when you take each team every year and you add up the number of years they've done this, or close to a hundred, and, and and you can't. So if it wasn't talent, it was that off the field stuff. And, yeah, is it, is it too early to put a shovel on D'Antonio yet? Probably. 
probably you know deserves another year before we start writing the the uh, tombstone. But based upon what we've seen off the field this off season, and it's hardly over yet. In some ways, it hasn't even begun. I'm very dubious, and I think that that write up was far too glowing. Last year at this time, none of this stuff had occurred yet. None of it had. Last year at this time, they hadn't lost a starting linebacker who might have been this year's team captain for dropping racial bombs on a teammate. Last year at this time, we didn't know about Keith Mumphrey being expelled from school for uh, a Title IX violation regarding sexual assault. Last year at this time, the top four recruits in, 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 the, they've, in the 2015 class or 2016 class weren't all gone because of a gang rape and other related things. Nine underclassmen hadn't hadn't left the program or what have you. I mean, I mean, last year at this time, none of this had happened yet. Yeah, so... Yeah, well, I'm bringing it up, though, just a second. None of it has happened yet, and it wouldn't have happened for several more months. And yet, despite all of that, they still went three and nine. So my point is, they went three and nine before these problems emerged. Now, of course... Some of these things were likely going on behind the scenes. We just didn't know it yet. Right. But explain to me how before the full consequences and knowledge of these events comes known, and in many cases they hadn't even happened yet, they go three and nine. And and but but with all these things right now enveloping the program and occurring right now, they're gonna radically improve. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, the only thing I can think of is they somehow lost God's favor along the way. Well, don't even get me started on that crap, okay? <laughs> what John is alluding to is, is is on the field after they beat Iowa on that incredible L.J. Scott run there on fourth and goal in the Big Ten Championship in 2015, Mark D'Antonio literally sat on that field. And one of the first things he said to the Big Ten or to the uh, Fox sideline reporter uh, after the game, I'm not. he said, quote, I'm not ashamed to say it. I just think we have the Lord's favor. Since then, they're three and ten, and if it, and and they and if it weren't for Baylor, they'd be Baylor. Yes. So yeah, there you and, go. And 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 the full consequences of this aren't even. I'm just telling you, taking your recruiting coordinator, who basically opened up a Detroit pipeline for you, and turning him into your fall guy. I'm not saying Curtis Blackwell's innocent. I don't know, but but it's clear he's being made out to be the fall guy because someone's got to be the the sacrificial lamb so D'Antonio can walk away from all of this. And and they're going to make that guy, who's very popular with the coaches in that part of the state, which Michigan State needs to at least, at least hold its own against Michigan to in that area in recruiting, if not win, in order to be uh, a good football program. Because they can't recruit with Michigan and Ohio State on a national basis. So they've got to beat them in their backyard. I think that has long-term ramifications and consequences as well. I think they're in existential trouble. I do. I do. I agree. I don't think I don't think they're very good on the on the on paper, and I don't I, I don't like the way or the trend line of their program. Let's go to Minnesota next. Yep. PJ Fleck could be another great example of the right coach at the right time. He takes over a program that has been to five straight bowls, won nine games last year has an on-conference schedule that all but a few Big Ten coaches would call perfect, and he's in a division that does not have a roster that separates itself with a bunch of four- and five-star recruits. And I haven't even mentioned he's got a new facility. So how does Minnesota take advantage? They challenge the rest of the West in recruiting and put themselves in position to have the most talented roster in the division. 
how PJ is different and young people like different. He's been pro- he's been a proven recruiter at Western Michigan, and there's no reason he won't be at Minnesota. But can he coach? Yes. Watch the tape. I actually agree with this analysis. Yeah. He. I think Flex persona is coming at the right time in a division where Ference is on his last lap around the track. Paul Christ is you know, Paul Christ isn't Norm or Cliff on Cheers. He's Paul on Cheers. Okay, he was there every episode and said like one or two lines. Okay, but no one remembers who he was. That's sort of his persona. And so, if you're going to go to Minnesota and you're going to and you're going to make be relevant to me, I think, you know, having a shtick, you don't have to have one. Jerry Kill didn't have one. He built a fundamental team. But if you want to get past that, if you want to take that next step, I think you have to have a shtick, and he has that. And I think he has that energy level. He has a school in an urban area that I think also is going to be able to help recruit. I am very high on what he's going to be able to accomplish there. Well, I think he's either going to eclipse kill and be consistent, a team that can win seven to nine games a year, or he's going to be Tim Brewster 2.0. I just don't think that there'll be any middle ground. Um, It'll be interesting to see if his act works over the long haul or if he just wears people out. Uh, I think that, and he's not unique in this, but I think that he is a high-pressure, commit-while-you're-here salesman, and nothing wrong with that. And I think that they'll have maybe a higher percentage of decommits than they've had in the past because of it. But we'll see. I think think he's the bearded lady, but you know what? You can make a lot of money with the bearded lady in the tent. A lot of people like to see that. Not my style. So that's just more of a personal... Observation, maybe even not necessarily biased because he definitely turns me off. Well, I like him, but I think all of your uh, potential criticisms are valid. Um, I get the Brewster reference. The one difference is this guy's actually built a program. Tim Brewster had not. Uh, but but this guy's actually built a program. And and he did it at Western Michigan, that it, which is not a traditional power like a Toledo or even a central Michigan has been for many years in the MAC. Um, it's a it's a program I know well. I grew up right around Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids, so I'm very familiar with it and its history. And so the, that so while I agree with you, he will be one of those two things, and I don't think your suspicion is unreasonable. As evidence for why I think he will he will not be Tim Brewster is he's actually built a program, meaning meaning the shtick the. It's very Harbaugh-esque in that the guy's a really good coach, and that sometimes gets overshadowed by the shtick, right? Brewster just had a shtick, couldn't coach. If you if you have a shtick and you can coach, well then you can then you can finger roll, brother. And I think he's I think he can coach. We shall see. Uh, next up is the um, Nebraska. I'm guessing. Donardo says, unusual that a veteran coach would make significant changes in offensive and defensive schemes in his third year, but that's what Mike Riley felt was necessary. Taking over a program with the best quarterback, being a junior and not fitting your system, will no doubt slow progress. Taking over a program that prides itself so much on defense that it puts them in a different colored jersey will make a coach change leadership and scheme if things aren't going as planned. But these moves have been welcomed by the team and the fan base. It's likely some growing pains, though, will come with these changes. Riley has endeared himself to Husker Nation because of the type of person and coach he is, but everyone must recognize that although these changes were needed, they will take time to develop. I think that analysis is right on the money, too, and if you translate that, 
if you run Donardo's comments through the John Miller Big Ten Network translator, what he's essentially saying is this looks like a desperate attempt yes. for, a, for a coach who doesn't fit to hold on. The, he, the fan base likes him, but that's only going to get him so far. Yeah, I totally agree. As you were reading, I'm like, man, this is actually, when you run the Big Ten amplifier through it, this is pretty, I wouldn't say damning, but it's it's certainly critical. He's, he's very skeptical of these moves. I think that's the fair thing to say. And he should be. Absolutely he should be. No doubt about that. Yep, yep. Yeah, That's that, that, those are the kind of moves typically that coaches make when their AD comes in and gives them pressure and says you got to do something. And you make those type of changes. So uh, next up would be Northwestern. Two things jump out about the West Division. One, it's very balanced and always has a few teams that can win the division. Two, it's usually won by a team with a good to outstanding offensive line. A small sample size, yes, but it doesn't figure to change. Northwestern has so many pieces in place to win the West. Clayton Thorson, Justin Jackson, and more overall talent on defense than most, if not all, of Pat Fitzgerald's previous 11 teams. The biggest question, though, is the offensive line. After last year's loss to Illinois State, Fitz made it clear when he said our O-line group got outplayed. There's no way I could have predicted that our offensive line would be as inefficient as it was today. It's no wonder this spring that he said, we're going to go where that group takes us. Hmm. Well, the Big Ten Network, in my opinion, always has a little bit of a soft spot in their heart for Northwestern. They've had since they've started. Um, and I'm not saying that Dave Refson is a pro's pro. Very good guy. Uh, Northwestern alum. They're all, they're, you know, There's a lot of Northwestern alums in media. But you know what? I think Northwestern probably does have a pretty good football team this year. So I can't be too critical of it. Yeah, you know, I like Northwestern a lot. Um, because I, what I like about Northwestern a lot um, is it's a balanced division. And they probably have the best combo of players amongst the two guys who are going to handle the football the most. Right? And so, and that's Thorson and Jackson, as he mentioned. And so, if, if you're if you're in a if you're in a division where most weeks, the score is going to be 21-17, 24-21, then I kind of like you being the team where most weeks you'll have the you'll have the better duo of guys that are put it, that are t- having the most touches on the football. The chances that you'll have that extra three or four points, I think, are more often than not in your favor. I don't know what you think, but that's sort of my read of their squad. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I don't have anything to uh, say to that. All right, let's take a look at Penn State. He says the program has had momentum since the Minnesota victory last October, right through National Signing Day. To compete for the East title, you have to complete. You have to compete in recruiting, and there's no doubt that's only going to get better at Penn State. The best programs survive staff changes. Penn State did that going into last year. The best programs have outstanding quarterbacks, and Penn State certainly has that. The best programs have a defense that can rush the passer, stop the run, play man coverage, and Penn State certainly has that. We're going to come to that in just a moment. The best programs have to learn how to handle success, and PSU will definitely have to deal with that this fall, which will make it another very interesting year in State College. Now, his last paragraph here is something I have said, and and. Penn State has not really had to deal with preseason expectations in this era, in the post-paternal era. They just have not, which means all of these guys that are on this team right now don't come from a lineage or legacy where they where they inherited from the seniors that were there for three or four years before they arrived. 
you know, they didn't inherit this legacy of, you know, hey, here's what's expected of you guys at Penn State, you know, on an annual basis. So so I, I do think it will be fascinating to see how they handle that. The schedule is very manageable. I don't get his evaluation of defense, though. I mean, they're okay. I'm not saying they're terrible. I just don't know when I look at their lineup. I'm trying to think who's the guy when I walk out there, you know, I mean, they're, they're leading returning sat tackles for lost person is eight and a half. They're leading returning sack person is six. And it ain't like, you know, well, Steve, that's better than Michigan has. Well, yeah, but Michigan also had the incredible Hulk sitting on their bench last year. Who's going to be, you know, a future num- maybe number one overall pick in the NFL draft and Rashawn Gary. Penn State doesn't have that guy. I don't, I don't know when I look at Penn State defensively, I just don't know who it is, John. I'm like, I got to stop that guy. Now, when, when, I, when I look at this schedule most weeks, I don't think that's going to make much of a difference because I think they're going to be really explosive on offense. And, and so I don't think that makes much of a difference when you look at who they're playing on a week-to-week basis. But, when, but I think that is the difference between going in and – uh, and beating Ohio State, which is what it will take to win the Big Ten again, and not. So I, I'm totally down with them pre, being a preseason top ten team. They will be in my preseason top ten, which is a projection of how I think the season will go when it's over, I, as I explain that every year. But I don't really see them until you get, show me who that defensive difference maker is. I don't, I don't really see them as a national championship contender. I, I see them as a team that's going to probably be ranked somewhere between 7th and 11th pretty much the whole year. Yeah, I think Vane, Wisconsin returned more players than any team in the rest of the league. Uh, they return almost everybody on offense. And I don't disagree with your comments on defense. Um, you know, in the Paterno era, uh, defense was really a calling card in power football, and Saquon Barkley's back there, and that's a good place to start. They caught lightning in a bottle at quarterback. I, I certainly wouldn't compare Penn State to a Big 12 team because I think they can play more defense than most of the Big 12 teams that you see. But they would maybe you know have a little more Big 12-ishness as far as big plays. I think they caught a lot of lightning in the bottle last year late, and they got really hot at a great time, and you know, props to them. Uh, they were actually entertaining to watch. I don't know that I disagree with you. I, I think that this team, on a week-to-week grinded-out basis, I wouldn't pick them to win at all. But, uh, yeah, I think they're one of the 15 best teams uh, in the country. Um Alphabetically, I think you jumped to Ohio State, but you can go to them or Purdue or whatever. Oh, did I skip them? Not bad. <laughs> it wasn't on purpose, actually, but I should have just played along. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's what he says about the Buckeyes. Getting shut out in the Fiesta Bowl will make Ohio State better. What separated the Ohio State spread attack when it won the national championship in 2014 was its downhill run game and it's a passing game maybe the way 2016 ended will bring osu back to that combination kevin wilson always has been on the cutting edge of the spread running game his work at indiana was extraordinary the coaching changes seem to have eliminated any questions about scheme and teaching but the downhill running game is only as good as the player running downhill the passing game is only as explosive as the protection ability of the receivers and of course the accuracy of the quarterback it seems like the pieces are in place, and now we wait for the results. Yeah, it, it's still amazing to me how they could have I don't, inadequate's not the right word. They're receiving they're, they're receiving core. I just I think that that maybe let them down a little bit. Um, 
they have they, they have as much talent as anybody. And I think at times Urban Myers zigged a little when he should have zagged. Maybe should have run the ball more in some years when he had the horses to do it. I don't I don't know why or what or what the reason is. They certainly have a great quarterback uh, returning as a senior this year, but you know they're the most talented team in the Big Ten. And I think when you look at the talent and you look at the experience, they're in a class by themselves. Don't disagree. Um, I I I don't disagree with that at all. I think they'll be very, very good. I think the chances are very high. They will be 11-0 and when they go to Ann Arbor on November the 25th. Um, and I like Kevin Wilson as a hire quite a bit. I'm not entirely convinced JT Barrett's a great downfield passer, but I think they could do better at that than they did last year. You know, they were really young in the offensive line last year, and I think that showed. And they never really de- – they didn't what's – what's bothersome is we didn't is, – is they – is Penn State seemed to expose that the night that they upset them. Um, and, you know, we kind of wondered, was it a fluke? You know, that was kind of a rainy game on the road. And then you saw pretty much everybody else play Ohio State the same way, bump and run on the receivers, load the box. You saw Michigan just dominate their offensive line when, when in that game. Uh, you saw Clemson even more dominate that offensive line in the Fiesta Bowl. See, my guess will be that unit is was just really young and will get better with development. What I'm wondering is who's the guy that's going to be the go-to receiver? You know, and Curtis Samuel, they asked a lot of him last year because they didn't have anybody downfield as a flanker, and he's more was more of a slot guy anyway, and that's what you'll see him play in the league. You know, but so so who's the go-to receiver? And I just I don't think Mike Weber is a great fit for that scheme. I just don't. I think, you know, he should have gone with his initial inclination when Harbaugh got the job and switched commitments. I think I think he is a downhill, I-formation running back. Uh, I, I don't see him as having the – he certainly does not have the burst and explosiveness of Ezekiel Elliott, nor is he a runaway, a runaway train. Um, uh, who's the guy who's with the Carlos High? He's not that guy either. He's kind of somewhere in between those guys. And and I just think you need more explosion or more power. Uh, if you're going to run the power spread with that one back back there. And I think he's got good explosion and good power, but I don't think he's extraordinary at either one of those levels. And, and I think he'd be much better in a pro-style offense. So I think they're the most talented team. I don't think their skill position talent, though, is dramatically better than the rest of the leagues. I don't. I think their overall talent is better, but I don't I don't think their skill position talent is that much better than the other top teams in the conference. And I think that showed last year. Moving on next to Purdue, I believe. Joe Tiller was a coach ahead of his time with offensive philosophy and the perfect complement on defense. Stop right there. Stop right there. Yeah. When he's referencing Joe Tiller and he's probably only had to have like 150 to 200 words per profile, that means he doesn't really know anything to write about or have anything to say about <laughs> Purdue. What about when he mentions Brock Spack at the same time? I thought you and I were the only people that just talked about Oh my Brock gosh. Spack. Did he really? He talks about his he talks about his winning combination with the Brock Spack. That okay, was a winning keep going. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jeff Brom, a former NFL quarterback turned play calling head coach brings the reputation of being on the cutting edge offensively. He brings with him a veteran defensive coordinator, Nick Holt, and tells him to make the, the opponent's quarterback uncomfortable, let him, lets him run the defense. 
Sound familiar? Very much like Tiller. So the model has been reset. Let's be explosive on offense and do the best we can on defense. It's worked before at Purdue, and it could work again. There are some new challenges since this formula last worked in West Lafayette. Wide open offenses are no longer the exception, and most turnarounds these days have more to do with the Jimmys and Joes than the X's and O's. Yeah, so uh, good luck. It's going to take you a while. Let's see how you recruit and um, try not to get your kids hurt out there. Yeah, that's kind of how I took that. (laughs) All right, Rutgers. One of the worst things that can happen to a defensive coach turned head coach is losing his offensive coordinator and changing schemes after year one. That's where Chris Ash found himself. Hiring Jerry Kill is an awful good answer to that situation. He, Ash believes he's made progress on defense and Kill's offense may be the perfect complement. This offense lines up in the spread formation with mostly pro formation running schemes. It's a time of possession offense that gives the defense a chance to hold up and not be on the field most of the game. Last year, Rutgers was 13th in the Big Ten in time of possession and last in total defense. It's hard to be competitive on defense under those conditions, but with crossovers being Illinois and Purdue, Rutgers has a chance for improvement. Yeah, much they'll be improved. That's another uh, bus tour thing when they don't have anything to say. You know, when I think about Rutgers right now, the only thing that pops in my mind is an article that uh, a Rutgers beat writer wrote this week saying that Rutgers basically took a bad deal to get in the Big Ten, making just $11 million for a few years before they're a full, a full league member, and then they got screwed over. And I don't know what you think about that, but it's like, bro, I could name 15 other schools right now that I would much rather have in the Big Ten than you, especially since once the cable bundle's over, your value to the league basically goes away, in my opinion. Well, let's see. You had a scandal involving your athletic administration. You have likely the worst combination of revenue sport results in the Power Five when you combine football and men's basketball. And yet you're in arguably the most financially lucrative conference in college sports. Tell me again what, what, what their complaint, what their lament is. Can yeah. you help me with that? Yeah. I, I, I don't get it. Please. Well, they just don't like the, the the money they're getting now after the fact, which, you know, welcome. It's called a contract. So. Well, I think this is where your boy Jim Delaney makes a phone call over to, over to Piscataway and says, you know what? I am altering the deal. Yes. Pray don't alter it any further. Exactly. I think that's a perfect uh, setup. Um, are we to Wisconsin yet? We are to the Badgers, yes. Wisconsin may be the most unique program in the Big Ten. It's played in four of the six championship games under three different coaches. The Badgers routinely finished in the middle of the recruiting rankings. They have an outstanding walk-on program. In this past NFL draft, they had two first-round picks, so what gives? All four teams that have played in the title game had outstanding offensive lines and threat at running back. Good to outstanding quarterback play and a defense that complements the offense. This year, they have four offensive linemen returning. Alex Hornibrook back at quarterback. Running back depth and two former walk-ons will start, and at least four more will contribute. The biggest question is the same one we asked last year. Will this year's change in defensive coordinators be as successful as last year's as a young Jim Leonard takes over? I actually think this is the best analysis he has given on a team yet. Yeah, I agree with that. And we've talked about Leonard this offseason about how, you know, the guy was playing the NFL a few years ago and he's never been um, never been a coordinator uh, at any level. Uh, I think he's just been an assistant coach for a year, if not maybe two max. So it is going to be a, a pretty big promotion for him. Now, that said, they have the right schedule. 
Yeah, they do. But, you know, it'd be funny. And football as a sport has a way of working out like this, you know? It's similar to your boy Phil Steele's turn, turnovers equals turnaround. Yeah. That you, you know, that you, that's always the first page of his magazine you turn to every year, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we all looked at the schedule they were playing last year. What did we say? Yeah, just Murderer's Row, Gauntlet. They're going to no be chance. two and four. Yes. And, of course, they ended up, you know, in, in the Big Ten Championship one. game in, in the Cotton yeah. Bowl. So the way this typically works... It would be just like how football has gone in the past to look at this schedule and say, oh, man, they're the they, along with Alabama, Ohio State. And I, and I can't remember who else it is. It, it, Wisconsin's in a group of teams that are the only ones favored in all of their games that Vegas has put lines on so far this year. So it, the way football typically works out after last year saying they're toast with that schedule and they blow us all away. How many times have we seen this, John? Oh, this schedule goes cruise through this schedule. Yeah, watch them go nine and three, eight and four, because they really have nine and three, eight and four talent. Frankly, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, let's look a little bit closer here. Alex Hornibrook got benched last year. Mm-hmm. He got worse as the year went on. Okay, so you know the kid Bart Houston, I think was his name, that, they, yes. that he ended up beating out, ended up beating him out at the end. So he got benched. The guys they did lose. This is this is not Michigan and Ohio State from a reload. Our freshmen look like they're your, your fourth year, you know, juniors recruiting uh, school. This is a developmental program. So the players they did lose, uh, the two stud linebackers, uh, Sojourn Shelton, both their top tailbacks, easily their best offensive line lineman in Ramchick. Those are significant losses for a developmental program. Right. This is not a reload program. It's just not. Okay, you know, so they lost um, they lost Watt and Beagle, their two best linebackers. Shelton, by far their best corner, their top two tailbacks. Now, you and I could go back now to Brett Moss, you know, over 20 years ago. At this point, whoever is the quarter, the, the tailback for Wisconsin is going to be good. It's a thousand yarder, just a matter of what their name is. Pick a name. They'll have that. They'll be great. So I'm not worried about that. But those other guys, I do think, make a difference. And so. We'll see. You know, I mean, much like Northwestern, we talked about them. They're in a division where a lot of the games each week are going to be 21-17, 24-21, et cetera. And although I think Northwestern's combo of Thorson and Jackson is better than what Wisconsin will put out there, they have a winning culture that is used to winning those games on an annual basis most weeks. So I think that is clearly an advantage to them. But just as we completely blew out of proportion – how daunting that schedule was going to be for them last year. I think we should pump the brakes a little bit before we all put them at 12-0 and 0 looking at the schedule this year. Not bad. Um, before we run here, there's a couple of things that you sent to me that you wanted to discuss. Um, the first of those two, I'll just read what you sent, and I think that's a good setup. The idea to disband the NCAA and put a rules and enfor- put rules enforcement in the hands of those who are most directly accountable to the public and consumer, which is the conference presidents and the athletic directors. And you said the Louisville matter is the last straw for me, and I'm assuming you mean the Louisville matter pursuant to uh, Rick Pitino and his five-game suspension for the sex scandal, which. 
is a joke, and then Patino has the the balls to come out and say that he's lost all faith in the NCAA. Yeah, I wouldn't even say balls. That's just shame. That's just that's just shameless, Garth Brooks. Shameless as a man can be. I, I just the guy's a knuckle dragger. Okay, and, and we've known that for years. He's just a total knuckle dragger. And props to you, Louisville. Two outstanding. What. What tremendous role models for young men you have as your football and men's basketball coaches, okay? But Jim, I mean, John Beheim gets nine games, or Jim Beheim gets nine games at Syracuse, almost twice as much of a suspension as, as Patino gets for having a sex ring. And here's the question no one will ask Rick Patino. No one asked him this at the press conference this week. No one asks him this question, Coach and ask Tom Jurek, the AD, this as well. Guys, can you tell me where a part-time assistant without a full-time salary came up with the reported at least $10,000 to pay this female pimp for her hookers and strippers? Do you know where he came up with that money? Any idea? Guys, do you, do you know? So, so I, this to me was a lot. And, and, and the ongoing, we can't get any answers on North Carolina. It's a sham. In my opinion... We ought to put enforcement into the hands of of the people that are the most directly accountable to the student body, to the consumer, to advertisers, and that's the administrators and that's the school presidents. And this is very similar to what we see in what I see in my day job in politics. Is you see politicians in both parties, they they voluntarily abrogate their power to what we call non-government agencies or NGOs, non-government organizations. Get, let me give our audience an example of what I mean. What I mean by that is if, we, if the issue of whether to, whether to legalize it comes up or not, okay? If that issue comes up and we don't want to, and, and we're in this state, your state legislature, and we don't want to have to vote on that one way or the other, what we'll do is we'll defer the decision to the State Board of Health. And then the State Board of Health will determine whether or not that substance becomes legal. Now, some people will say, well, Steve, shouldn't the State Board of Health make those decisions anyway? Well, understand, the State Board of Health isn't accountable to you. So if you don't like the decision they made, there's really no way to change it. Well, Steve, we can just elect new people that will, that does no, no, no. They, 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 they abrogated, their, they punted it, the ball to them, so that later on when they tell you there's nothing we can do about it, they can say, well, the State Board of Health already made that decision. So non-governmental agencies and non-governmental organizations are supposed to manage, implement, and regulate the decisions on policy your public servants make. They're not supposed to make the, 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 the policy decisions themselves. That, 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 that's why we have elections. That's what the NCAA is. It, it, it acts as an NGO, as an, as, as an NGA. And that way, these schools, and, and then they gave it no subpoena power at the same time. So these schools get to essentially, when, when the thing blows up, hide behind, well, that's what the NCAA ruled. And so this is how we end up in a situation where Ohio State's football program suffers dramatically more for some guys getting their tattoos paid for and a kid selling his football jersey than a, than a school that recruited a national championship team in basketball uh, by way of uh, providing uh, sex parties with strippers. That's how we ended up with this. And, and I, think that, I think instead, 
put the decisions in the hands of the guys who are accountable to the consumer, to the constituents. And that is the ADs and that is the school presidents. Because if you get, the NCA is nothing at this point other than a bureaucracy. That's it. It, it, it really, it, 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 it's toothless, fangless, and it's that way absolutely on purpose. And we are in a situation now where we are, we're way past, you know, Billy Bob, you know, down south, hand in, you know, so-and-so, a $500 handshake for getting three touchdowns in the Iron Bowl. We're way past that now with what, what's going on at Michigan State, right. what's going on at Baylor, what, what's, what's going on here at, uh, at Louisville, and, and case after case. The Oregon State case, we're going to talk about that one here in a minute on the baseball program. I, I think that it's time to get rid of this third party here, and, and let's, have, let's be able to actually question the guys who are making the decisions. Because here's the other thing, too. Well, Steve, those conferences and those, they're never going to police themselves. Oh, yes, they will. You want to know why they're going to police themselves? Because what happens is when, when, when feminist groups rightly lose their minds, this is where Steve Dace will agree with the feminists. When the feminist groups rightly lose their minds over what's going on at the next Baylor, if the conferences themselves are involved in policing those schools, uh, then what happens is advertisers get nervous. Advertisers say, you know, just like they pulled their ads from Bill O'Reilly when the New York Times reported that Fox has given 13 million, in, 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 at least in known settlements, for various to settle various sex suits against the number one host in cable news. He's now doing stuff on Skype without makeup that looks horrible. Six months ago, he was that he was he was King freaking Kong. What changed? Well, what changed is advertisers are like, we're not running ads on a guy that's a creep around women. Well, if they're doing that with Bill O'Reilly, what do you think they would do with the collegiate sports program, John? And that's where the conferences are like, hey, wait a minute. Now we got our television partners calling us. Do you see where I'm going with this? Right. That's how you'll get some actual discipline. Is when you threaten people's, when you threaten the money change or the money train, when you threaten the revenue stream, that's when people have a tendency to listen to you. It's really not for any other reason. And, and that's why I that's why I would do it this way. And I, I don't I don't know of a better way to do it. I just and maybe there is. I just know the way we're doing it now doesn't work, especially because here's what we're also doing. We're still in the process of punishing players years that, that you know, and, and because of the way the system is set up, the only way to punish a program is to punish the guys that are on the team that had nothing to do with what was going on before. OK, why? Because these investigations take years and years. The old Miss investigation was done until Larry Me Tunsil, you know, got caught, you know, with a bong mask and admitting that a guy paid his bills and they opened that thing right back up again. How eight years? Is that how long the North Carolina investigation's gone on? Enough. Enough. Put the put the onus on the people who get paid the big bucks to actually run these programs. And they're the ones that have to actually make themselves available to regents and trustees and the media then I think we'll we'll get some actual discipline because you'll see advertisers get nervous. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And you brought up the last topic. Um, your question is, do we need to consider full background checks of recruits in collegiate athletics like the NFL has for draft picks? And this is in light of an Oregon State pitcher named Luke Heimlich um, who was projected to be a top 50 MLB draft pick this last week. Um, 
he, when he was 15 years old, was pled to a level one sex um, molestation offense against a four-year-old. And level one in the state of Washington is the, the lowest possible risk, is what they say, with minimal likelihood of committing another offense. But still, he was required by law to register as a sex offender in Oregon. He did not do that. And a, the Oregonian newspaper, as they were doing a, you know, preparing to do a feature on him, as I mean, a top 50 pick is going to get a lot of money. And, you know, Oregon, right, Oregon State right, right now is 55-4, and four, having beat Cal State Fullerton in the opening round of the uh, College World Series. You're talking about the number one overall seed in college baseball, and this kid was one of their ace pitchers. And in, in their background research for the story, they uncovered this um, thing from Heimlich's background, this incident from Heimlich's background. He has not pitched for them since. And, again, he was considered to be projected as a top 50 baseball pick, which makes you wonder if the Major League Baseball teams had done their homework. But he went, mm-hmm. undra- he went undrafted in 40 rounds. And your question is, should the NCAA perform background checks? And I would think the answer is yes. I think in light of, in light of what we've seen played go down at Baylor and continue to go down and the heinous aspects of the sexual assaults there and it's not like Baylor is the only school in the country that deals with this sort of thing we talked about Michigan State earlier and some of the things that are swirling up there Um, you and I have daughters that we're going to send off to college someday so I, I, I don't think it's a bad idea it's certainly probably a costly idea but it's not like the NCAA isn't rolling in coin yeah especially my understanding too with Mr. Heimlich is there was a previous incident I think even with this same young girl a couple of years prior to the known one, but it was expunged because of um, uh, his age at that point in time. Uh, so I'm a big – the reason why I like standards is not because um, I, I think human beings are basically good or because I'm self-righteous. It's the other way around. Uh, it's actually because I know human beings aren't basically good, and I know I, I'm, I, I live with my own conscience every day. I, I live with the thoughts that go on inside my head most people probably don't even want to know about every day. So I am more aware of my fallibility than probably anybody else is. I know what I am capable of, what I think about, and what I would likely do if there weren't any consequences. And what I still do, even though there are consequences. This is why I think standards are a good thing. Because what's happened here to the Oregon State team is they're in an impossible situation. You know, and players have come out and said, well, you know, I support Luke and think, well, what are you going to say about your teammate? And, you know, you're trying to win a college World Series and you're thinking of, you know, your own major league future. And the last thing you need right now is to is to take a stand on this beyond some benign pro team statement. So that, you know, you've got to answer 97 follow-up questions about this for the next three weeks. Let's just, you know, that's when you went to go play baseball at Oregon State, and chances are you're on a partial scholarship because that's what rules college baseball. I think the average college baseball team has, when you factor in how they allocate partial scholarships, about 11.7 scholarships a team. So if ever, any, you ever wondered, why is Cal State Fullerton so good? Well, they belong to the cheaper 
university system in California. And so even if you go play at USC or UCLA, you chances are you don't get a full scholarship, which means at USC you're paying a huge private school tuition, whereas I can go play at Cal State Fullerton, which is much cheaper, and, and if I got to cover some of this out of my own pocket, it's much less expensive. That helps them get really good players that they can't get in other sports. And so if I go to a school like that, man, I, I got other things to worry about than this. If I'm the if I'm the manager of the Oregon State baseball team, I got 50 other things to worry about other than this. This is a decision that should be taken out of the hands of a coach, should be taken out of the hands of a team. And it's very clear if you have a past history. And I'm sorry to say this, man. I mean, I I I believe in forgiveness, but we can't confuse consequences with condemnation. You know, I think somebody who goes to prison for murder can be spiritually forgiven as well. That doesn't mean you walk out of prison because you've asked for forgiveness. You know, Jesus sits there at that cross with those two criminals on the other side of him, and the one that, and the one that recognizes who he is, Jesus looks at him and says, "Hey, you're going to be with me in paradise by the end of today." But he doesn't look at the jailers and say, "Hey, let this man go free. He's been forgiven. No, he committed his crimes. He has to pay for them." You know, there are certain things that you do in life that essentially disqualify you from from maximizing your human potential. Uh, sexual assault, molesting kids is one of them. And, and so one way to avoid this and one way to avoid the temptation of because he took himself off the team when this came out. The team did not. He did it. He decided he was going to be too big of a distraction and removed himself. This is something that just should not even be decision worthy. The decision's already been made. We did a background check. You have a history of, of molestation, sexual assault, etc., and so the answer is no, no. And that way, we don't even have to wrestle with this. We don't get blindsided by this, etc. And I think it's something we're going to have to sadly take a look at, John. Yeah, I mean, the NCAA does not outright prohibit sexual offenders from being able to come and play sports. They leave those decisions up to the schools. But I think when those schools find out about it, and I'm guessing Oregon State maybe didn't know, um, when they find out, it's probably fait accompli at that point in time. Your, your point on the baseball USC thing, that's a great take. USC, 52 grand a year. 52 grand a year. Cal State Fullerton, six. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a brilliant point. I'd never thought about that. I can't believe USC's that much. But at any rate, well, that'll wrap it up for this installment of the HN Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. For Stephen and I'm John, we will talk to you soon.